evening to you all. Tonight's talk is going to be on sila, a term that's uh, translated in a number of different ways. One version is moral discipline, another is ethical training, uh, the third is moral restraint. The Buddhist teachings are described uh, in broad strokes as having three dimensions. Sila, samadhi, and panya, meaning moral or ethical behavior, uh, concentration or meditative development, and wisdom, liberative wisdom. And this is said to be a gradual training. So sometimes this gradual way that the practices are taught and, and um, offered to people starts with dana, sila, bhavana. But whether you start with sila or you start with dana, this quality of sila is right there early, right in the front. And every time we take the five precepts, we're undertaking the practice of moral restraint plus, in the case of the additional three precepts, renunciation. So the last of the, the three precepts aren't actually so much about morality as they are about letting go on, of taking on the additional uh, practices of not following sense desire. But the first five are surely within the range of sila practice. And there's a good amount of overlap between the five training precepts that we take here and sila as it's expressed in the Eightfold Path. The only difference is, uh, which is significant, is that in the Eightfold Path version, restraint from the use of intoxicants is not specifically mentioned, but it's certainly implied. And the fifth step of the Eightfold Path takes up the question of wise livelihood, which is something that we really don't get into with the five lay precepts, presumably because, at least while we're here, there's not livelihood going on, so it's kind of a moot question. And you may know there's not livelihood going on when you check your checking account. But let's take a look at what the sila actually is. And in order to understand what it is, I think I'd like to zoom in a little bit on this phrase that's used often to, within Buddhism called skillful means. Skillful means. So you could understand this as actions or choices or views which are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. And as you can see, 
this is a definition that focuses on what works and it's pragmatic and not moralistic. So my understanding of the Buddhist path is that it's not one of condemnation, but it's practical. It's supremely practical and realistic. So the inquiry is in relationship to sila as well as in relationship to other parts of the path. The question really is, what's actually going on here? And given that and what the goal is, what's the best way to proceed in furtherance of that goal? So I'm pointing to the functional nature of the sila practices in terms of our longer term aspirations and motivations being fulfilled. And it's important to keep that understanding in mind because when we discuss ethical behavior, often we bring to the conversation our own particular cultural overlays. So for many of us, but certainly not all of us, but for many of us who have been raised with Western cultural values, and have a modernistic or postmodern frame of mind, lectures on morality are rather boring and stifling. So we like our freedom and uh, childhood experiences we might have had of finger-waving and shaming often cause us to turn away from these kinds of teachings. So mostly we're inclined to want the good stuff which is generally held to be some kind of meditation practice we hope can fix us or provide some immediate benefit or to get rid of various types of mental or physical or emotional pain. So we're not so much interested in hearing about constraints or discipline and this is part of the territory that we're talking about here. So for many uh, of us moderns, or postmoderns who come to meditation practice, we're not really so interested in this particular stuff. We, we kind of want to jump right over that into the meditative practices, which we are inclined to think of as the real deal and um, not subject to any of that religiosity that we may be in reaction to. But the Buddhist path is often described as an uphill one which goes against our natural human tendency to seek pleasure as the goal and the measure of all things. And at some point in our career as humans, most of us learn that we actually can't indulge every impulse that we have. Now I... um, This summer I spent some time with a Nisu... Uh, has two children under the age of two and a quarter. So uh, she and her husband both work, and so during the day the, the children are taken care of by their grandparents. So in many ways it's a very f- uh, fortunate situation for the kids. So... The 14-month-old was walking and doing some talking, and so he had a number of skills at this point, so he could like 
throw a ball and kick a soccer ball. And, you know, he knew some song fragments and he was uh, a good cuddler. So he was a great guy, you know, and he liked to cuddle. He's very busy, but he liked to cuddle. <laughs> so so his, his grandma, his Oma, was there, uh, and she, he got a lot of attention, which is uh, fortunate for him. But uh, there's something apparently involved with teething that caused him every once in a while, while his grandma was cuddling him and holding him close, to give her a good chomp, right? (laughs) You know, nice satisfying chew on something soft, you know? (laughs) And of course, this impulse to soothe his gums in this particular way led to a reaction on the part of Oma who would like swiftly and firmly place him on the ground. Boom. But with care. Which, of course, he did not like at all because this was a big fall from heaven. Right? So she'd get the nip, she'd react by putting him down the floor floor and he wouldn't like this loss of the nice cozy connection and he would become very unhappy and cry. So this was the cycle. Lovey doodles, chomp, (laughs) cry. So one morning when I was awakening and before coffee, there was apparently another teething episode, but this one involved grandpa. So this involved grandpa. So he responded in a particular way, which I found quite impressive under the circumstances. So he was spontaneously uh, creative and he invented a song for the occasion, which illustrated the lesson. So he he sang to uh, uh, the boy, don't use teeth It's not right. Teeth are sharp and very hard. Teeth are strong, but it's always wrong. So do not bite. It's not right. Don't use teeth. So when the rest of the adults came together, you know, we we did this as a chorus a few times. I'm trying to reinforce this learning. So the toddler was amused by this, and I do think that he got the point. Okay. So a humane way of offering this teaching. But if you, if you look at it a little deeper, you can see that this is actually an early moral lesson in impulse control and empathy, Right? being offered by the caring adults. So you can see that limit setting is in the interest of the child's greater interest in happiness. Yes, chomping feels good at the time, but it's a feel-good that's a kind of problem. Right? You continue this pattern too long in your life, you know, <laughs> you're going to be ostracized in daycare. Right? They're going to be calling your parents up to tell you that Tell them that, you know, they can't take you. But you see in the story the first reason for teaching Sila, which is 
Moral restraint keeps us from harming others and ourselves. And because we're social creatures, what goes around in families and societies comes around. So if we continue to bite, people get upset and reject us. And if we model violence and ill will or selfishness and unreliability in our families, then we live with that on an intimate level. So we know that human beings need each other to survive. We live in communities. But for the communities to be happy and successful, we need to be practicing non-harming. Otherwise, there is conflict and mistrust and danger and violence. So I once had a, an acquaintance, not somebody I knew really well, but somebody I, uh, I was aware of and knew some things about from um, observation. And this particular person had a reputation for having a bad temper at work. So in that setting, people often deferred to her, which had some upside in that she got her way, right? So this was a person like you wouldn't challenge, you know. People who got on the elevator with her were like, hmm. Um, but this... Uh, Upside was far outweighed by the fact that it also caused her to be avoided and distrusted by other people. But the real downside of it became evident when her uh, habit of dominating people in this way showed up when her own son got to adolescence. And then he became explosive and physically menacing in how he expressed himself and threatening to the point where she had to repeatedly call the police on him. So we all learn from what is modeled, especially when we're young. So if an adult just lets the unskillful states fly, the speech and the behavior, they're actually planting the seeds of problems in their children. You know, there's that maxim of hurt people, hurt people, and it has a lot of wisdom in it. We have to learn better and behave better in order to keep from passing along harm. So if you think about the structure of the Buddha's teachings, you remember that the second step of the Eightfold Path is where the Buddha talks about wise intention, wise intention. This being the cultivation of renunciation of compassion and goodwill. And this wise intention and these qualities, goodwill, compassion, re renunciation, are directional pointers that lay out the whole compass of how practice is oriented. So everything we do as a practice is an implementation of or informed by these three attitudinal values. So in a sense, by the time we get to the explicitly ethical parts of the Eightfold Path, which are the next three steps after wise intention, we've already been informed about where the path is going. So it's going to non-harming and beyond that, it's going to the cultivation of goodwill and compassion and letting go of trying to make everything meet our preference for pleasure, better known as re renunciation. So when you get to the ethical steps of the Eightfold Path, which are wise speech, wise action, and wise li livelihood, 
you can understand that they're actually filling in some of the specifics needed in order to practice wise intention. And they're pointers which highlight things which need special care because they're karmically potent. So the understanding is these particular behaviors of body, speech, and mind are places where you really need to attend and exercise restraint. So the first motivation for practicing of sila is non-harming and all the, the dimensions of care for ourselves and our families and our communities that are part of that. And then the next piece of it is, <clears throat> given the karmic potency, that's an important factor in understanding that in order to be aligned with mundane wise view, which makes the differentiation between wholesome and unwholesome, or skillful or unskillful actions, there needs to be sila. So actions that flow from causes and conditions which are unwholesome, we later experience as suffering. Those that flow from wholesome motivations and intentions plant the seeds for future arising, but these are the ones that lead to happiness and liberation. And the Buddha is very clear in pointing out that there is fruit and there is result of good and bad actions. Our actions bring results and we ourselves are the heirs of what we have done. So if, if one is routinely unethical, then Dharma practice will be difficult. And that will, I mean, more difficult. <laughs> and that's because uh, <laughs> generosity, goodwill, compassion, and renunciation haven't been cultivated on the behavioral level, which means that they're probably not that present in the mind stream. So this would likely mean that one is not particularly drawn to spiritual practice, which asks for an uphill kind of effort against the tide of our organic biological preferences. So the deeper the ethical ditch, so to speak, the harder and more painful it is to get out of it. And yet all human beings do have this potential to awaken. So if sila is well established, there's a a huge practice advantage there. So the mind is supported and settling in more easily and the conscience is clear. And this in turn helps support samadhi or unification of, of mind which undercuts the presence of the hindrances. So freedom from remorse means calm and self-respect And that makes it easier to find self-support in times of difficulty. So one can reflect easily on wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind in a way that boosts faith, sadha. And this confidence is the first step in developing the rest of the five spiritual faculties which govern our spiritual practice because faith fuels the effort needed to establish mindfulness. So this all stems from moral restraint. So 
Remember, don't bite. So the Buddha has this idea and understanding and he talks about it in many different ways but the bottom line is that reality is conditioned. So the present moment is arising from conditions rooted in the past and those existing in the present. And as we contribute to the present moment with ethical behavior, that becomes a cause and condition for future arisings that are beneficial for ourselves and others. So knowing that our moral behavior has potency, then we can be inclined to recognize the importance of practicing in this particular area. (coughs) Because it allows us to front load supportive conditions to our own awakening. So you could say that sila is a skillful means to support the arising of conditions conducive to liberation and to support the cessation of conditions that are not conducive. So we know that if mindfulness is pure and continuous and strong, that means there's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. So maybe you experience like one moment of that. Maybe you've experienced many moments of that. Maybe you've experienced minutes of that. But that's not the common state of the average worldling, as the Buddha would say. But sila has this other function, which even if the hindrances are there, if we remember to restrain our behavior in particular ways, at least the defilements aren't running wild. Right? So somebody once likened the ethical practices as like the rumble strips on highways. You know those markers that they have that are slightly raised along the shoulder of the road and along the center line and they're designed so that if your tires start to go over them, you start hearing this sound like womp, 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 womp. It's a signal to you, hey, you know, you're, you're wandering out of the lane. You've got to be careful now. You've got to get it, get it back. got to get it recentered. And when the Buddha was talking about a monk who asked about what his training was in a nutshell, he said, First, establish yourself in the starting point of wholesome states, that is, to purified moral discipline and right view. Then when your moral discipline is purified and your view straight, you should practice the four foundations of mindfulness. Which is saying, sila gets you started on the path of development, and then purification of mind can take place through the practice of insight and concentration. So this is a huge protection for us on many different levels, this quality of mind. There's been a lot uh, in some of the Buddhist websites and publications recently about practice communities, sanghas, and teachers who have not observed sila 
and the destruction that has been seen as a consequence. So we're all works in in progress, but the integrity of the teacher is of utmost importance because without the integrity of the teacher, without their observation of basic morality, especially in the teaching seat, the whole thing has gone askew. There was a question that Greg responded to in the hall and it was along the lines of uh, religions and morality and what's the difference between a religion and spirituality and what about religions that seem to be okay with ethical things that are unethical. And what I would say about that is there's a difference between institutions that claim the ownership of systems of spiritual practice and the spiritual practices themselves. And when there is a choice between those two, th- two things, always go with the system of spiritual practice, which will have as a core element the practice of sila. Because if there is no practice of sila within the system, it is not a system of spiritual development which can be relied upon. So this is a very important point. Any religion or any religious organization that is acting in contravention with basic sila and morality is not to be followed. It's as simple as that. There's a phrase that's sometimes used to justify or to attempt to justify unskillful conduct on the part of teachers and that phrase is crazy wisdom crazy wisdom. Here's my take on it. When I read you that story a few weeks ago about Ajahn Chah having the novice monk stay up all night to clean the robes after he had been practicing without sleep for hours and hours and he was asking him the next day to clean all his robes when he just wanted to go and lay down. That was crazy wisdom. How do you know? Because it was actually wise. It actually had a beneficial effect on the mind of the monk who saw how he was clinging and how it was causing him to suffer. It wasn't undertaken by a teacher whose mind was clouded by delusion or self-seeking. So if somebody's claiming behavior is justified by crazy wisdom, then the test would be, well, how'd it turn out? Was the outcome actually wise and beneficial? Or was it destructive and contradictory to the norms of those who are expected to be moral when they're holding a teaching seat? So a community of any kind, whether it's the family, the workplace, or a sangha, which has sila is a safe place. So in a place where actions aren't intentionally harmful, the seeds of future turmoil are not sown. And clarity, 
trust and peace can emerge more easily in that place. Not that it will ever be paradise because, hey, human actors, you know? But there's a baseline of decency there. And when wise intention is practiced and goodwill and compassion are values, people are committed to non-harming. So what are the cornerstone practices of this sila? So the first of these, which would be step number three on the Eightfold Path, is right speech. And it's interesting that this comes first. And you find this explicitly repeated in the five training precepts too, right? So meaning, abstaining from lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, and idle chatter. The idle chatter thing seems to me like the venial sin. The other ones are pretty serious. So the Buddha had a very major commitment to truth-telling. So if you look at stories about the Buddha's past lives, it was said that in the course of his many past lives, he did many unskillful things, being a worldling like all of us are. But it's said that the one thing that he never did was to tell an intentional lie. And the Buddha said that one who would deliberately lie would do anything, meaning that this is an important marker to him of untrustworthiness. So given what some of the studies I've read have said about the frequency with which human beings lie, <laughs> this is uh, like multiple times a day for multiple reasons somewhat gendered reasons. Um, this is an area where a lot of practice is possible. So regardless of uh, what some may think, it's actually not possible for post-truth to exist. So lack of concern for what is true is, is a sign that needs to be noted. So to me, this also ties into intellectual honesty. You know, not going along just because of cultural or societal pressures. So if we're going to positively phrase this area of wise speech, we'd say, using words that are true, friendly, and benevolent, pleasant and gentle, meaningful and useful. So somebody who is skilled in wise speech can be very powerful in healing divisions and bringing groups together. Unwise speech, of course, destroys lives and communities and countries. And we are all well aware of the history of the world where intentional rousing of hatred and distrust between peoples 
has resulted in cataclysm. So our mouths have created many problems. But our words also have the power to bring many things forward, to bring forward understanding, to bring forward reconciliation, to find a way to tell the truth skillfully and not out of aversion. To actually be willing to say and be able to say what needs to be said is a great gift to others especially if it's said in a way that is timely and motivated by metta and compassion and wisdom. I was recently uh, saw just the fragment of a documentary about a, a Native American man named Nahan who lives near Seattle. And uh, he's a tattooist He does tattoos. And he himself has many uh, beautiful tattoos that uh, from from what I could see from the video were in the Pacific Northwest Coast style. But he had a very interesting way of doing his art. So the piece of this film that I saw had him doing the tattoos by hand not with, you know, one of the buzzy things. But he was doing the tattoos by hand. And he was doing them, uh, he was doing a tattoo for uh, a woman who was also Native American. And he was talking about her role in the tribe and how she was a connector, how she she brought people together in the tribe. And he designed a tattoo that was just for her, that symbolized her role in the community as someone who connected individuals and connected the group. And before he did the tattoo, he prayed and did ceremony and silenced his mind and then uh, did his work with what seemed like a quill, just very simply and quietly. And I noticed he had this sign in his shop that said, if the words you spoke appeared on your skin, would you still be beautiful? So the second of the ethical steps on the Eightfold Path is right action, which addresses how to live in daily life. Negatively phrased, we could say, you should abstain from taking life, stealing, and sexual misconduct. And into this step is often read those, uh, read from the five life precepts, restraint from intoxication causing heedlessness. So the first of the ethical training steps is about how our mouths can help or hurt. This is about the rest of our behavior. 
positively phrased, you could say, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to protect life, take only what is freely given to me, protect relationships and avoid sexual misconduct, protect my the clarity of my mind through avoiding intoxicants. And that positive reframing of this step, I believe comes from Thich Nhat Hanh's community, which has done a lot of work in looking at this area of the practice path and, and framing it in, in the direction of affirmatives that should be done. So next and last is right livelihood, right livelihood. Nothing is said directly about this in the five uh, uh, practice precepts. But here you see the incorporation of the idea of ahimsa or harmlessness towards other beings. So here again, you hear the echo back to the second step of wise intention compassion, and goodwill. So in livelihood, harmlessness, non-harming. And it states that you shouldn't work or earn a living by doing things which cause harm to others. Well, that opens up a lot of questions, right? Because of how intermeshed we are in what are sometimes global economic systems that when you look at them closely, of course, have tendrils or even deep roots in things that might be very unwholesome. You know, if you think about the, uh, the effect on the planet or the extractive industries that happen in conflict zones or the exploitation of labor, there's a lot there to be considered. But Traditionally, the particular things that are mentioned here are trading in arms and lethal weapons. Well, okay. Gun manufacturing? Military stuff? I have a friend who at one point was... uh, looking for work and actually needed work and was a software person and got a call for a job that was uh, at a, a base where they were testing tanks or something that comprised 90% of the, the military's lethality for that kind of thing. And she said, I can't do it. Right? even though she wasn't herself directly going to be involved in making these happen, these things happen, it was still too close. It was too close to be even uh, a support element several steps away from the actual development and testing and production. Trading in intoxicants. Huh? Maybe that career as a bud tender has just disappeared. 
I don't know. Bartender? Hmm. Poisons? Killing animals? Cheating? Of course, there are many dimensions to business, even mainstream business. Uh, is it is it cheating? Well, okay. Is it cheating when uh, you're a financial advisor and don't tell your naive clients about how you're actually making money out of what you recommend they invest in? Probably. So another dimension of this is business in human beings like slave trading and prostitution. And yes, slavery or near slavery does still exist in the world. And forced prostitution does exist in the world. And the Buddha also critiques Dishonest means of gaining wealth like scheming, persuading, hinting, and belittling. It's an interesting thing, you know, the Buddha had no issue with what he called righteous wealth righteously gained. He wasn't like everybody should get rid of everything and, you know, pick up some rags from the charnel ground and, you know live like an extreme aesthetic. And in fact, there are some of his teachings where he talks about the importance, if you have wealth, of sharing it, of distributing it, of not being a tightwad, not keeping it all for yourself, you know, sharing it with your family, sharing it with your workers, spreading it around. So, a positive phrasing of this might be uh, to work and earn a living in ways that express loving kindness, compassion, respect, and support for living beings. You can have uh, employment doing something that at first glance seems to be totally non-altruistic and not particularly significant, but there are ways that you can often frame that so it becomes other than that. So an example of that might be uh, somebody who works as a barista. Right? Okay, this is a job that requires some skill and there's repetition to it as well, right? You're standing on your feet. You know, you make make some money, not tons of money, you make some money. But you could actually be the most important person and uh, consistently present person in somebody's life in an interesting kind of way. I think of somebody who works at a, a pharmacy that my 95 year old mother goes to 
and this person is a pharmacist, okay, you don't really think of this necessarily as being like a direct helping profession in the same way that you might see, like nursing or something like that. But my mother says, well, when I go down there, that girl is so nice to me. She always sits me down. She says, now, Winnie, that's my mother, let's just go over your medications and let's make sure that, you know, they're right and you know when to take them and she says she just takes so much time. Right? A lot of this stuff is in how you do it, right? If you're a weight person, how how you put the food down on the table. Right? So We can beautify our, our lives in many different ways and the ways we can beautify them are not necessarily through the most obvious of a physical adornments. There are ways that things, things can be held. Held as a mentor to people who have less skill or who are younger than you or can be held as a uh, someone who shows respect and care for older people and still sees them as a person, no matter how, how much older they seem to be than you are. The sila practices are really just the fleshing out of some particulars related to care and concern, goodwill and compassion. It's kind of the first level of restraint that focuses our mind on these particular things so that we don't forget. So we remember, we remember at least this, and then having remembered at least this, these kinds of restraints, we can take a look at the underlying principles in each one of these areas and look at what the affirmation would be, what the affirmative behavior would be that we can practice. So there's a lot of potential here. And in the Buddha's path, we're called upon to use our own intelligence and to use our own discernment to look at the underlying principles that are being pointed out in the body of the teachings and how they work together. So it's not a simple paint-by-number thing where we just follow in a rote kind of way what somebody else is telling us. We're called on to look more deeply into what's being pointed to, what the intention of these practices are, and how they can can be applied to the real circumstances of our lives. When I was first coming to IMS, I had a lot of uh, friends and family members who got a little bit curious about this thing I was up to. Now that I was going away for three months at a pop and they weren't hearing from me at all, and it all seemed very mysterious, which it still is, right? I'm sure some of you have noticed that when you told your your people that you were disappearing for three months. 
but they said, uh, so what's it like? Why do you, what are you getting out of it? kind of hard to explain, isn't it? <laughs> Getting out of it. Oh. And I said, well, one of the things I've really noticed about the environment is if somebody left a stack of hundred dollar bills on the hall, on the, a table in the dining room, if they came back an hour later, they'd still be sitting there. And if they weren't sitting there, it was because somebody turned them into the office. And I said, and I, I like the people and I trust them. And this was after I had done years of work around uh, issues of violence against women. I said, you know, the men there, I said, you know, it's never wise to like completely trust anybody you don't know really well. I said, so, uh, you know, I couldn't like completely 100% vouch for them, but I'd bet on them. I'd bet on the men there. And that, to me, had a lot to do with what I was drawn to in this environment, right? There's a, there's a goodness here, you can feel it. For a long time, um, until we had some episodes with people coming in from the outside, there were absolutely no locks on the doors here. I remember when we were doing the construction at the, at the forest refuge, the uh, contractors would be going over their punch list of what needed to be done in all the buildings, and we, you know, we got to the dormitories, and they were saying, oh, Nobody ordered any locks. There's no locks. We've got to order the locks. We've got to order the lock sets. We've got to put in the lock sets. And I had this repeated conversation of, uh, no, we don't need those. Well, you've you got to order the locks. You've got to order the lock sets. <laughs> you need the locks. <laughs> A different world, right? A different world. So the Buddha often contemplated his own sila and it gave him a lot of happiness. So these precepts that are spoken of as pristine, traditional, ancient gifts, this gift of harmlessness that we give to others and to ourselves in the process, does give immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. So this is the foundation in my way of thinking, the foundation for larger social change. Because if people are trustworthy, if people are trustworthy, then change is trustworthy. And if people are not trustworthy or seen as not trustworthy, change is not trusted. So these things cannot, cannot be separated in my mind. If there's an ethical baseline, 
there's the basis for moving forward. And without that, there's not trust. So such simple practices are really important. They're really the hub of a lot of other possibilities. So the next time we uh, take the precepts, then there'll be a lot there for you to consider as part of the context of that. May we express our commitment to non-harming. By practicing restraint from harmful behavior. And by undertaking the training in affirmative actions based on care and concern. So that we may be trustworthy and bring bring truth and trust into the world for the benefit and welfare of beings. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.